If you have a Bible or you want to go back to the back and grab one, let me invite you to flip to 1 Samuel, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. Scroll there. We are starting a new series this morning that will carry us essentially through the summer months. And I want to show you right off the bat, I want to jump to chapter 8 and just show you a verse on the screen to sort of give us a sense of where we are headed in this book and in this series. This is 1 Samuel chapter 8, 19 and 20. I would say this is in some ways the key scripture to understanding this entire book and what's going on and what the Lord has for us. God's people say these ominous words. It says this, the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. We want a king over us. Listen to what they're saying. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Give us a king. These are a fool's words. Give us a king. See, this whole book is about God's people wanting an earthly king, and in so doing, they are rejecting the perfect, holy, righteous, heavenly king that they already have. Sounds a little bit like our world today, doesn't it? Unfortunately, it also sounds like a lot of our churches today. Setting aside the heavenly king for an earthly king. And this book, as we walk through it this summer, is going to tell us a lot about the temptations that all of us as people and as believers are going to face to choose earthly kings or even earthly things rather than Jesus Christ, the king of kings. And so the question that will constantly be put in front of us is how do we remain faithful? How do we remain faithful to this good and loving king? And it's going to do that by showing us three primary human characters in order, Samuel, Saul, and then David. And they're going to teach us a lot about what it means and honestly what it doesn't mean to follow after the one true king. Even King David, who as you may recall, the Bible will say about him that he was a man after God's own heart. But even David, if you know anything about his life, like all of us, he was broken. He was sinful. He was a mess. And what the scripture is going to show us in this passage and throughout is that God is faithful, is a good king, and that we need him, that we cannot possibly do this life without him. This morning's passage, we're going to cover all of 1 Samuel chapter 1 and really most of Samuel chapter 2 as well. And we're going to see through the lens of a couple of secondary characters that really wrap around the beginnings of the life of Samuel. And we're going to see their faithfulness. In particular, we're going to see Samuel's parents, Hannah uh, and Elkanah. We're going to see how they trusted the Lord. We're also going to see this, um, this priest, Eli, who honestly is, is a fairly spineless character, and we'll learn a little bit more about him. And then also Eli's sons come into play in chapter 2. Their names are Hophni and Phinehas, and they really are wicked sons who have rejected the Lord, and they have rejected uh, their father's faith. But most of all, what we're going to see as as we walk through this book in the Old Testament, and as we walk through any book of the Old Testament, like the New, it screams Jesus Christ. It shows us our need for the one true Messiah and King. And so as we're walking through this story about prophets and priests and kings, we will inevitably see that Jesus is the one, final, perfect 
prophet, priest, and king, and we need no other. Amen? So, Let's look now, 1 Samuel chapter 1. This is a long passage. We're going to read the entire first chapter to get this whole story. So beginning in verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim. If you're looking for a name for your son or daughter, let me recommend that one as well. (laughs) Ramatham Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeraham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. All good biblical names. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. We'll come back to that odd circumstance. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year after, or year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? We'll come back to that question as well. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And she continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man, Elkanah, and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. 
So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Thus far, the reading of Scripture. Let's take a moment and let's pray and ask for God's blessing over his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this book. We thank you for your word that is perfect. It is inerrant and infallible, and we submit ourselves to you and to your word this morning. We submit ourselves to King Jesus, the word made flesh. And would you teach us and draw our hearts close to you this morning? We thank you that we have salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Son of God who came to earth for us. We pray all all these things in his glorious name. Amen. Five ways this morning to trust in the Lord our King. Number one, trust him through trials. Number one, trust him, trust the Lord through trials. We see this particularly in the first eight verses, although certainly it is a theme throughout the text. Scripture does not hide from the reality that life is hard. And scripture is very clear that the Lord does not abandon his people in their trials. Rather, he uses them for our good. It reminds us that we can talk to God about anything, particularly our trials. Hannah, in verse 10, it says that she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. You should see that that is a normal thing. To be able to share your heart and everything that is going on, good or bad, and to talk to the Lord in that. There is nothing that you can say that God, your Father, cannot handle. She grieves, and she grieves deeply, as we see, because she cannot have a child. And she grieves further because Peninnah, who is essentially her rival, is attacking her. This is striking as we think about our own modern age. We are obviously extremely thankful for the medical advances in this field. And yet, after 3,000 years, humanity has yet to solve the challenge of infertility. This is not just something that she dealt with. And we should pray and we should weep with the women and their husbands who also long to be pregnant. And they are waiting on the Lord. Let me also address one of the interesting things right off the bat. Although this text here does not explicitly say it, the dysfunctional family, to say the least, that is highlighted here is making it clear that polygamy, having more than one wife, having more than one husband, is sin in God's eyes. It is seen uh, implicitly here because we see the jealousy, the bitterness, the split affections that are taking place, and we go, that's not good. Those are the results of sin and it was a culturally okay sin, but it is sin nonetheless. In Genesis 2.24, the Bible does make it explicitly clear. And similarly in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7, Romans 7, make it explicitly clear. One man, one wife, married forever under God. It is very possible here, though, that Peninnah also is pushing Hannah to complain against God. But you notice here, rather than driving Hannah to bitterness, 
And, and rather than driving Hannah to complaining, her trial drove her to the Lord. Her trial is what drives her literally into the presence of Yahweh, God, and it drives her to gut-level prayer. The kind of prayer that Eli looks at her and, and he incorrectly thinks, oh, she must be drunk. No, no, no. She is just pouring out her prayers. She's not speaking out loud, and so he misunderstands the situation. And you yourself may be asking, why isn't God answering my prayer? Or maybe you're in a position where you look at that story and you go, well, why doesn't God answer her prayer sooner? Many of us find ourselves in this position. In fact, I was uh, speaking with a brother in our church recently uh, about this exact question. Why doesn't God answer the prayers of his people when they are suffering sooner? Why doesn't he do it faster? And, and we were doing this because we were looking at another story in the New Testament where Jesus, the Bible says in, in three different gospels that Jesus was watching from afar. If you remember, as the disciples were in a boat, in a storm, and the boat began to sink. You remember this story? Why does Jesus wait before he walks on the water and does a miracle and calms the storm? Why is it that Jesus is away? We don't know exactly where, but he's away and he's just watching. I said to my brother as we were talking about these things, I think if I can put myself in the position of Jesus, Jesus is watching the disciples, the Lord is watching you in the same way that I watch my children as they are learning how to ride a bicycle. There's something that they need to learn, and I am allowing them that struggle, but I'm right there. I am in total control of the situation, and I will grab the handlebar, and I will catch them before they fall. And that is the situation that God is in with us. That is the moment that Jesus is with the disciples who are in that stormy boat. He is not watching as if he doesn't care, which is what the world will tell us. He is not watching as if there's nothing that he can do about it, as if he is not powerful to save, which is what the world will tell us. The scripture tells us that he uses all things for our good. The famous preacher Charles Spurgeon used to say this, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. Believer, like Hannah, God is with you in your trial, and you can trust him. Number two, trust him to provide. Trust the Lord to provide. We see this in verses 9 through 11, and then we're going to see it again in chapter 2 in the first 11 verses. Trust him to provide. Now, I know no husband has ever found himself insufficient to make his wife feel better. No? Just me? I mean, I know my wife loves it when I try to fix it for her. Yeah. Her husband's love here is genuine, but it wasn't enough. If you are married, or if you desire to be married, do not put your spouse in the place of God. This is what this scripture is reinforcing for us. There are things that only the Lord can do for you. We also start to see Eli, the priest, that he is fairly ineffective as a spiritual leader. He should have known that she was not drunk, that she was praying. He is a weak leader. And again, though, her priest, although well-intentioned, was not enough. So do not put me as your pastor do not put a, a good Christian counselor or even a trusted friend in the place of God. There are things that only 
Jesus Christ can do. So put your faith ultimately in Him. Let good things be good things, but always make sure that the Lord is the best thing in your heart and in your life, that you are always ultimately looking to Him. Because I promise you, if you are looking to your spouse, he or she will disappoint. They are not the best. Marriage is a wonderful gift, but do not put them in the place that only Christ can be for you. Here is why we should put our faith in the Lord to provide, though. Hannah is not the first barren woman in Scripture that the Lord gives a child. You know this? Think back to the beginning of Scripture. Sarah in Genesis 11, Rebecca in Genesis 25, Rachel in Genesis 30, Samson's mother in Judges 13, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist in the New Testament. Barren women have been God's faithful servants in raising up key people in the history of redemption. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Samson, John the Baptist, and here, Samuel. The point for us is God loves to make our total inability his starting point. God loves to remind us that where we feel helpless and where we feel hopeless, these are not barriers to him. 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So what are the impossible situations in your life? Or what are the impossible situations in the lives of those that you love and you care for? I will tell you this, if God can save a rebellious, dead heart like mine, if God can raise people from the dead physically and spiritually, if Jesus Christ has conquered sin, Satan, and death, then there is no challenge that you are facing now or in the future that he cannot provide. He will take care of you. And the Bible says in verse 19 that the Lord remembered. This is not to say that the Lord forgot. This is to say that in his timing, he gave Hannah what she needed and what she asked for. Hannah prayed, Hannah grieved, and the Lord provided. Notice, it is the Lord who closed her womb. The Bible says it twice. It is the Lord who is not allowing her initially to have children, and it is the Lord who opened her womb. Job chapter 1, there's a lot that we can learn from Job. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, says the King James Version. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do not despise God's sovereign purposes, even in your suffering. He will provide everything that you need. See here, God is moving our prayers. He is empowering our prayers. He is answering our prayers. Do not be tempted to trust in earthly kings and in earthly things to provide when the Lord has, will continue, and through all eternity will provide for his people. And in 1 Samuel 2, if you've got your Bible, flip over to chapter 2. Hannah recognizes this more clearly than ever, and she gives what is a, a, a prayer of praise. And when she speaks, it is a clear anticipation of what Mary, the mother of Jesus, is going to do in the New Testament. But listen, this is verse 1 and 2, and then I'm going to pick up verses 5 through 8. She says this, "'My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord.'" 
Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Looking ahead to verse 5, the barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. This is a manifestation of how God, Yahweh, rules and brings his kingdom to fullness here on earth even today. Every time God lifts you out of the muck and sets your feet upon a rock and raises you up to be a prince, a princess in the kingdom of God, it is a testimony and it is a reminder of what only Jesus can do because Jesus has come to raise up in every sense. He has come to restore. He has come to save. He has come to deliver. So don't boast in, in you or what you may have accomplished or what you have, boast in the Lord, knowing that he will provide. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the sovereign Lord. Number three, trust him with your children. Trust him with your children. If you don't have children yet, you desire to have children, this applies to you just as much. Trust him with your children. If you invest and disciple people, Trust them to the Lord as well. Hannah made a vow to the Lord back in verse 11. And now in verses 21 through 28, she obediently fulfills her vow to the Lord. And so she presents little Samuel, no more than probably three years old, to Eli. And after she praises God for his faithfulness in answering her request, she says, I have lent him to the Lord. I have lent him to the Lord. Literally in Hebrew, he is made over to Yahweh. God, my kids are yours. That's the modern Ben Harris English translation. My kids are yours. As believing parents, we are in a covenant relationship with God. And and covenant means promise. God does all the promising. We broke all the promises. Jesus fulfills the promises of the covenant that we break. But as parents, beginning in Genesis 17, verse 7, the Bible says, God covenants with believers and their children. Genesis 17, verse 7. Chapter 12, chapter 15 say the same thing as well. And so we should passionately desire that each of our children is made over to the Lord. That our children, God's gift to us, should be given back to Him. This is a part, not all, but this is a part of why we baptize infants and young children here. That may be something new for you. That may be outside of your theological vocabulary, but let me give you a snapshot here. In the Old Testament, the symbol, the symbol of our covenant relationship was circumcision. The symbol of our covenant relationship, God's people with the Lord, and it marked out an infant as a member of the family of God. And Colossians, among many places in the New Testament, tells us that Old Testament circumcision has been superseded by New Testament baptism. 
Baptism, among many things, is a sign and a symbol of the covenant of grace. It is a symbol of our union with Jesus in his death and resurrection. It is a symbol of forgiveness. It is a symbol of the washing away of sins, of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and regeneration. It is a symbol of our adoption into God's family and eternal life. Now, let me be absolutely clear with everyone. Being baptized with water does not save anyone. I understand that in the, the full household of the family of God, that there are, there are churches that have differing views of baptism. We are thankful for all those who disagree with us on this point. What we must agree on, we must understand that baptism, whether it is a believer coming to be baptized, which we also do, whether it is an infant child that we are coming to fulfill our covenant promise with them, it does not save anybody. And we look forward to the day when that child will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ as well. But one of the things that we do when we baptize a child is we are saying, this child was a gift from you, God, and I'm giving him or her and their life back to you. Hannah gave her child back to the Lord. Now, I read that much differently now as a parent for a few years. I read that and I go, how could she do that? Right? How could she give little Samuel, little three-year-old Samuel up? Evangeline turns three in two months. She kept us up all of last night. Couldn't sleep in her big girl bed. I, I still wouldn't give her up. At 2.50, we considered it, but by 3 o'clock, back to, back to the norm. She's watching online. She's devastated right now. <laughs> Why would we give our child back to the Lord? Because God is trustworthy. Feel the reality of that. I give my children back to the Lord because he is trustworthy. Because I promise you this, no matter how much you love your kids of any age, God loves them more. No matter how much you try to protect and lead and guide and so forth, and those are all good things, God can do it better than you can. He is worthy of our trust related to our children, but he has given us a role. Parents are the primary disciplers of their children. Not the school system, not even me, you. So parents, the words we speak, the word of God that we teach our children, the life that we live, the gospel mission that we include our kids in from the earliest of ages, the evil that we protect our kids from, these are all ways that we can daily and practically give our kids back to the Lord. What's your greatest desire for your children? If you're a grandparent, what's your greatest desire for your grandchildren? To win the lottery? To win the voice? To get drafted into the NFL? No. Fame, fortune, power it is not our desire. Our desire as believers is that they would have a deep and abiding relationship with King Jesus, the Savior of the world, and that they would trust in him and that by Jesus' grace that they might reflect the goodness of Jesus to the world. That's our desire. Trust him with your children. Number four, trust him with grace and justice. Trust him with grace and justice. This is in chapter 2, 11, verses 11 and 12. A very odd, very striking verse. 
And the boy, this is Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Good stuff. Verse 12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Wow. They did not know the Lord. Why are they worthless men? They did not know the Lord. God's grace and justice is evidenced here in this section to the faithful and to the unfaithful. Understand that God's grace and his justice are always perfect. God's grace we see here in the lives of Hannah and Elkanah, who are blessed, the Bible says, with five more children. After Samuel is born, they are given three more boys and two more girls. The Bible goes on to say twice that Samuel was ministering to the Lord, that is, he is serving the Lord, and the Lord was pleased with it. The Bible says that Samuel grew in stature and favor with the Lord and also with man. That's a great prayer for us to pray for our kids. God is always faithful. And everyday faithfulness by ordinary people like you and me can be, by God's grace, something that changes history forever. God is going to use Samuel. It's not about Samuel, it's about the Lord, but God is going to use Samuel to change generations of God's people. It reminds us that God hears and answers prayer, that God saves, that God has a plan and a purpose in your suffering for your good and for his glory. Samuel is God's chosen instrument to bring to the throne through a lot of struggle and suffering, a man of God's own choosing, King David. And then we see God's justice. God is a God of justice. He is not one or the other. He is always perfectly both. And we have Hophni and Phinehas, the wicked sons of Eli, who are also essentially junior priests who are learning from their father how to be a priest. And there is a lengthy discussion in chapter 2 of all the ways that they fail at their job. But to give you the high points, as priests, these two guys would steal meat. The meat that was there to worship God with and, and was a sacrifice, they would steal it. Both stealing it from God and stealing it from the worshipers who came to offer it up to the Lord. They are demolishing the worship of God. And then the Bible also says that they were sleeping with the women who were serving at the temple. This is public, scandalous sin. The Bible goes out of its way to say everybody knew what they were doing. These are the spiritual leaders of Israel. The wickedness of the world had found its way into the church. Thank God that never happens today. It is a tragedy when God's people and when the, the, the human God-ordained leaders of the church fall into scandalous sin. All Israel and the entire church suffers when leaders are arrogant and immoral. Then they were a priest, today they are pastors, elders, etc. It is a tragedy. Yet even in that dark day, God was still there in both perfect justice and perfect grace. Notice that God does not leave the guilty unpunished. Let me say that again. God does not leave the guilty unpunished. That's not my idea. That comes from Scripture. We love that when it's somebody else. Love it. We don't like it so much when it's us. God does not leave the guilty unpunished. Yahweh, it says, brings life and he also brings death. And he, notice, protects his people from evil leaders within his church. And so the word of the Lord comes to Eli as a priest and as a father. What a tragic word that he gets as the spiritual leader of God's people and the father of his household. 1 Samuel chapter 2, the first part of verse 29. This is God speaking through another prophet to Eli. 
Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? Ooh. He was honoring his sons above the Lord. We talked about in relation to spouses. Anything, any good thing can become an idol. And this is what has happened in his life. And God said that his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, would die for their sin. And that Eli's line of priests generationally would come to an end. Among many things, let me highlight this thought. Eli shows us what the willingness to tolerate sin leads to. Destruction. It's a harsh word. Justice is harsh. The willingness to tolerate sin leads to destruction. People can end up in the grave thinking that silence over grievous sin is somehow being nice to people. It is not. It is not a kindness. And in saying that, we must always remember, always remember in every word that comes out of our mouths, all of us stand guilty before God outside of the grace of Jesus Christ. All of us. And the Old Testament here begins to show us the gospel in a profound way. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 25. This is four verses earlier. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. So the priest does, they mediate. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Who can be the go-between? They would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Who will go for them? Who will intercede for them? This is an incredibly important question. In other words, who can satisfy the justice of a holy God? Could Eli the priest do it? No. Could Hophni and Phinehas do it on their own? No. If there was already a king in Israel in that day, could he have done it? No. Can any of us today intercede on our own and resolve the broken sin issue with a holy and righteous and just God? The answer is no. None of us can. Fifth and finally, trust him as Savior and King. We talk a lot about receiving Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Same language. Look at the end of chapter 2. Now, this is 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. What's going on here? A guy named Zadok, Z-A-D-O-K. Zadok the priest is the earthly fulfillment of this prophecy, and it takes place in 1 Kings chapter 2, just a few chapters later. He replaces the last of Eli's line of priests. But that's not it. There is a greater one who is coming, right? There is a greater one who can mediate, who can be the final and ultimate high priest, the true promised son of an unlikely and even a miraculous mother. Remember? Mary wasn't just barren. She was a virgin. It was going to take a miracle, and God did it. 
one who will be a perfectly obedient son, unlike Hophni and Phinehas, and even unlike Samuel, because certainly Samuel was a sinner as well, but there is one who is coming who will not sin, one who is dedicated to the Lord perfectly, the anointed one, the Son of God, God the Father, who didn't indulge his son's sin. Rather, he gave his one and only son to save us, his disobedient children, from the death that we deserve. Jesus is the final prophet. He is the great high priest. He is the king of kings. He is both our judge and our defender. He fills both seats. He's the only one who is God and who can save us. How does he do that? Well, as priest, he's the only one who can intercede for us on our behalf because we have sinned and offended a holy God. He is judge and defender in that he rightly brings eternal justice. And he makes a way out of that eternal justice and gives eternal life. How did he do that? Because he's a king. He's a king who laid down his crown. And he took up a different crown, didn't he? He took up a crown of thorns. He came to earth. He lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. He died on the cross having committed no sin. But he took upon himself the sins of all those for all time who will believe and put their trust in Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. He took the punishment for you. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is our great high priest. Only Jesus can raise you up from the ashes and set you as a prince to bring you into a family that you didn't deserve to forgive and pay the penalty for your sins, to wipe the slate clean eternally, to save you, here, now, and forever. If you have never trusted in Jesus as your personal Lord, King, and Savior, let today be the day. And if you do know this wonderful Jesus, let this be a reminder that He is your only King. Do not be tempted to listen to the world when it says, give us another King. He's the only one that you've ever needed. He's the best. Let's pray.